Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. This with me is a man named Charles W. Chuck Bryant, who's a little under the weather right now. <laughs> yes. You sick? Yes, and that should come through in this show. If you get me sick. I'm not going to get you sick. I got my own little mic cover yeah. with my name on it. Yeah. I'm going to take it, probably burn it. Actually, I'm not going to burn it because it's pricey. Didn't the company get it for you, though? Oh, well, yeah, but I don't want to waste the company money. That is good thinking. Uh, yeah, I'm a little ill, so all apologies, people, but we like to soldier on here Yeah. at SYSK. We meet our deadlines. Remember when we often talk about when you were sick for eight months? <laughs> it was a long time, yeah. yeah. I'm Hopefully. hoping this is no more than a few shows. Maybe even just these two. That's what I'm hoping. Because we're recording two today. Yeah. But I feel bad for you because both of them are kind of chilly. Yes, Especially this one. Wintry topics. Yeah. Well, it's almost always winter in Antarctica, even when it's summer. Tis the season. Um, Chuck. Yes. Have you ever heard of a guy named Captain Robert Scott? Uh, Bobby Scott? Yeah, Bob Scott. Oh, Cappy? I think he went by Rob instead of Bobby. Better known. Uh, he was one of the first two people, or led one of the first two expeditions to make it to the South Pole. In oh, yeah? Antarctica. And he was beaten by just four weeks by a Norwegian rival. I thought you were going to say he's beaten by a polar bear or something like that. Uh, no, well, he did die. Oh, really? A five-man team made it to the South Pole and started making their way back and just hit some real freak weather. Um, and the guy, the, the team meteorologist, was in that five-man team and just felt awful that he'd missed this prediction. Yeah. And they were just buffeted by, I think, Negative 40, negative 90, just ridiculously cold temperatures. So freak weather, or as they call it in Antarctica, weather. Or Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, these guys died, um, but they were found, and among them were found some uh, some of the finds, some of the things. This is a scientific expedition, obviously. Sure. Um, some of the notes they made, um, some of the weather notes, the... Um, a trio of penguin eggs, emperor penguin eggs. Nice. So they, this was kind of the um, the crown jewel of the stuff that they accumulated during the scientific expedition. And here's why. Apparently, back in this era, this uh-huh. is 1911, I think, um, people thought that emperor penguins, because they couldn't fly, were the most primitive birds on the planet. Yeah. That they hadn't evolved. And people were real keen on proving or disproving Darwin's new theory gotcha. about evolution through natural selection. So they figured, if you go find the eggs of this very primitive bird, you're going to find the link to dinosaurs and birds. And the reason why is because the Edwardians also believed that um, an animal went through all the stages of evolution during its gestation. Okay. So they figured, hey, Silly take dude. some emperor penguin eggs. Crack them open, you're going to find a dinosaur, <laughs> right? It didn't work out like that. But they found the very cute emperor penguin. They they did, dead inside, of course, frozen to death. <laughs> and now that I've seen the march of the penguins, I realize just how mean that expedition kind of was. I didn't see that. Oh, man. I know. You don't mess with an emperor penguin egg. They go through a lot yeah. to keep those things safe sure. and warm and hatched. And uh, you don't, you just don't steal three of them. <laughs> Agreed. Captain Robert Scott did. And you can't 
today either, I imagine. You can't, but you can pay someone to take you as close as you like, and if you're a jerk, you could conceivably do it. Sneak one out in your old purse? Yeah. Let's let's talk about vacationing in Antarctica. Did you know you can do that? Well, I do now. Yeah, me too. Uh, here, let, let's talk about the, the body of land itself, because it's pretty remarkable. It's uh, South Pole, like you said. Yep. 99.5% of uh, the landmass is ice, and I think the other 05 is a, a small putting green, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Some nice uh, zoysia right. growing there. Uh, during the winter, they uh, <clears throat> the ice gets bigger, obviously, making it the fifth largest continent, 5 point million square miles of largely ice, and that's a lot of ice. It is. Even though it's shrinking, which we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. But naturally, during the, the seasons, it expands and contracts slightly. Sure. Yeah. As ices want to do. Yeah. Uh, when it's warm, uh, which is November to February, it's going to be below freezing almost all the time. In the winter, it can drop to 90 degrees uh, below Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And I got a world record here of 128 below zero. Wow. In 1983 at the, the Vostok station. Wow. Very dry, which is awesome. Because it's like pristine, powdery snow, uh, blustery winds. Actually, that's not the good part. Well, bl- the winds are almost constant, and they get up to like 200 miles an hour. You ever seen The Thing? Yeah. Whew. And by the way, 200 miles an hour is 321 kilometers per hour for everybody else. Sure. And you know what? 90 degrees below Fahrenheit is minus 68 Celsius. Yeah. Like to convert for our friends in other weird places. So, yeah, chew on that, Canada. <laughs> uh, not a lot of uh, people live there. In fact, only the only people that live there are people that have set up uh, research stations there. Yeah, and, so, and some, I guess some of them are manned year-round, which is pretty crazy. Sure, it's awesome. Yeah, um, so I say if you go to a research station during um, the time from, what, February to November? Yeah. Uh, you're going to find maybe 50 people there. And then when it's bustling from November to February. Summertime. Summertime, yeah. there's going to be maybe 150 people there. But all of these are temporary residents. No one lives on Antarctica. Well, temporary uh, in a living sense, but they're permanent structures. Okay, yeah, right. They're not living in tents. The residents are temporary. Yes, yes. Not their structures. But there have been people who were born on Antarctica. Yeah, now that that was a cool fact of the show, I thought. Yeah, have you heard of uh, Emilio Marcos de Palma? I have indeed. He, you have. He's Antarctican. He is. He's the first Antarctican ever. He was born in January 1978, and um, it was a bit of a ploy, actually. His father worked at a research station in Antarctica, and the Argentinian government w- found out that this guy's wife was pregnant, yeah. and hustled her, her down to Antarctica to give birth there in an attempt to lay claim to sovereignty of Antarctica. Yeah, and that's uh, because no one is generally born there. There's a lot of nations over the years that have tried to uh, claim it as their own, including Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, Mm -hmm. Great Britain, uh, New Zealand, and Norway. And I'm surprised the U.S. isn't on there. Don't we know that there's land out there that we don't have our our name on? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chile did the same, pulled the same stunt as Argentina um, I think six years after Emilio Marcos de Palma was born, and a kid named Juan Pablo Camacho was the second Antarctican ever born there. That's right. But you can have as many babies as you want there. You're not going to establish sovereignty because there's a treaty from 1959 
called the Antarctic Treaty, appropriately enough. And basically it says the Antarctic doesn't belong to anybody. It's like yeah. the oceans. It belongs to everyone and no one. Um, no one can lay claim there. And because it doesn't belong to anybody and because it belongs to everybody, um, it's protected from war and it's a nuclear-free zone. So like would, you can't wage war in war anyway. No, I know. Who are you yeah. going to fight? Yeah, exactly. Like the 10 other people? Yeah. Or, in the case of the thing, you would be fighting some... Uh, horrific shape-shifting beast. Right. And by the way, we should probably point out, I think it's still commonly overlooked, uh, Antarctica is the only place where you can find penguins, right? Except for zoos and aquariums. They're not in the Arctic. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Penguins, Antarctic. Gotcha. And also, if you, uh, you know, I know you love HP Lovecraft here or there. Sure. Um, If you are into Antarctic and... You want to be scared out of your wits by an emperor penguin. Read At the Mountains of Madness by Lovecraft. Yeah, I want to read that one. Dude, that's probably his best one. Really? And it's set entirely in Antarctica. I think they're making a movie. I think they have before. Peter Jackson's looking into it, I think. That would be good. Yeah. He's probably the only person who could pull it off. Oh, yeah? But he'll he'll probably fail like everybody else. What about uh, Eugene Levy? You don't think he could do it? He could, but it'd be too charming, you know? <laughs> like, it wouldn't exist in the canon. Or a Christopher Guest movie. <laughs> I just saw Spinal Tap for the first time the other day. First time ever? Ever. Shut up. You was like, what do you mean you haven't seen Spinal Tap? So yeah, we, that's we weird. watched it, right? Uh-huh. I loved it. I had no idea what I was missing. I tweeted to Michael McKeon and said, <clears throat> are you aware that you're in Spinal Tap? And he tweeted back. Shut up. Wait, what? Really? That's what he said. Yeah, I favorited it. So we're on, was that personally or that was SYSK? SYSK. So we're on his radar in a small way. Apparently. Wow. At the very least, he thought it was a funny tweet. That's pretty funny. Yeah. And I can't believe you never saw that. Never. I literally watched that movie over 50 times in college. Like, I can recite it almost by heart. I can totally point. see that. Yeah. I can see that. Was, I mean, I love, you know, uh, Best in Show a lot, so I knew I'd like Spinal oh, sure. Tap. But, yeah. Well, that yeah. was the that was the original. I know. Wow. Yeah, it was strange seeing Harry Shearer because I just associate him with The Simpsons almost entirely. Oh yeah, yeah, he was great in that too. I could talk about this stuff all day. Let's get back to Antarctica. Yeah, or we should do a Christopher Guest Spinal Tap uh, podcast. Okay. Point. Um, so if you want a vacation there, which you can do, you got to get there. And in this case, getting there, I don't know if it's half the fun, but it's half the challenge because. <laughs> You're not going to find any I-20s zooming into Antarctica or uh-huh. any Delta airline flights landing there. Right. And most of the action um, when you're traveling to Antarctica takes place on the Antarctic Peninsula, yeah. which is a sweep of land that juts out toward uh, southern su- South America. I imagine almost all of Antarctica is still very much not trod upon. Right. You know? Um, yeah. It was just explored, like, at the beginning of the last century, basically. Yeah, people are like, why do I want to go down there? Freeze my took us off. Right, exactly. So, like you were saying, like, it's it's not easy to get to, and you're going to get to the point that's easiest to get to from southern South America. So, most likely, you're going to take a ship, a cruise ship, probably, from Argentina or Chile, and show up. Which seems Antarctic weird that they're Peninsula. that close. It's very close, isn't it? Isn't it weird? Yeah, like, you think of, like... Hot temperatures. You do, but then you're like, oh, wait, that's Bolivia I'm thinking of. (laughs) Chile's actually right by Antarctica. Uh, The first commercial cruise liners, because you're going to get there by ship, is how you're going to get there. And cruise ship is one of the most popular ways to do that these days. Uh, The first one came in 69, 
And that was to, the uh, Lindblad Explorer. Oh, really? Yeah. Just to give you an idea of the increase in tourism uh, over the years, in the early 90s, only about 9,000 people per year. And just a couple of years ago, in 2008, 2007 to 8, 46,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of people, but no, it's, it's a lot dude, for Antarctica. Right. Especially when you consider the proportion that were wearing Mickey Mouse ears at the time they were cruising <laughs> around the glaciers. Drinking Chilean wine? Yeah. Uh, there is a uh, tourist association, the IAATO, International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, right. formed in the early 90s. And their mission, basically, is to keep everything safe and keep everything above board and ethical on a environmental uh, scale. Yeah. Because they, they don't mean- want it to be ruined. Antarctica is supposedly pristine. It is. We found out it isn't, though. That same, uh, the, the same Scott expedition. Yeah. Also, I don't know how. I don't want to think how, but came about came by some uh, emperor penguin skins, and they're still to this day used to um, as a, a control sample when you're comparing um, tainted emperor penguin skins right. today, and they found out that DDT's actually made its way down there to Antarctica, really? so it's not really pristine. Jeez, well, it's pretty pristine. Right, well, now that you have all these ships and people running all over the place. Well, exactly, it's like the Everest deal. Exactly. Uh, November to March is, like we said, this quote-unquote summertime, so that's when tourists are most likely going to be there. A uh, little bit smaller of an ice sheet, which means boats are going to be able to get around easier, because you got to be able to navigate through the ice sheets. And not a whole lot of boats have the kind of hull that it can withstand bumping into icebergs. No, this was very alarming to me. It was to me, too. There's, there are people who are going on cruises, on cruise ships. Yeah. And these cruise ships can't withstand an iceberg. The um, the uh, Lindblad Explorer? Yeah, the first one? Yes. Yeah, I'm that sure was also didn't. the first one. That was also the one that sank in 2007. It was the same exact ship. Isn't really? It ironic? Yeah. They changed the name to the MS Explorer. Huh. But it was the same exact ship. The first one, the first cruise ship to go to Antarctica, was also, I believe, the first one to sink in 2007. That's a nostalgia and tour. It was actually outfitted to withstand an iceberg, and it still sunk. So then you consider that there's plenty of cruise lines down there that aren't in any way um, equipped to take an iceberg. Uh, apparently, they're very worried that this is a, a disaster waiting to happen. Well, let's go ahead and go there then. Uh, since 2007, there have been four ships that have run aground, which is not a good place to run aground. No. Well, plus, it's not good for Antarctica because it's like, hey, have you met our refined fuel yet? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but if, if you do run aground and you're in a, in a cruise ship incident, you're going to be stuck there for a little while. Because it's not like any other place where they can just send out a, a SAR team and all of a sudden you're getting rescued six hours later. So in 2007, uh, with the MS Explorer, these, these passengers were in lifeboats. It says for hours. I wonder how long. I, I don't know. I can imagine a while. And they got picked up by another cruise ship, right? So it wasn't yeah. even a SAR team that came to rescue them. No, it was a Norwegian cruise lines, I think, that came and got them. So they're like, thank you. And that same year, actually, uh, Ann Curry from, uh, what is she, from the Today Show? She's from a show. She was doing... Um, <laughs> In the morning. She was doing a, a a piece called Ends of the Earth, and she went down to Antarctica, and she and her crew ended up getting stuck there yeah. for days, and they just hung around the research station, which we'll get to in a second. Because of freak weather, though, right? Not like an accident. No, but the freak weather is... Apparently, fairly common. So you just call it again weather down there, right. or Tuesday weather. Um, 
But apparently if you book an Antarctic vacation, the tour operator says, don't make any big plans right. on two weeks of either side of your trip. Yeah. Because there's no telling really when you're going to go down there. That We're was, shooting for this window, but it might not be that window. That might put me off. Not from a schedule standpoint, but just from beer. Right. You know? And then I have a story for you. Let's hear it. So um, it, this is all in summer. Like, you might get stuck there during the summer. Right. If you're in winter, there's no way for you to get out. You're absolutely stuck there. Nobody's coming in, and you're not coming out. You have to hunker down for the winter. Yeah, they shut it all down, right? All travel? Yes. Um, and they're, I think, beginning in 1959, the Russians built the um, Novolazarevskia. <laughs> That's my Russian. Nice. Uh, their Antarctic base, the Russian Antarctic base was built. And two years later, there was a surgeon there named uh, Leonid Rogozov. Okay. And he was stuck there for the winter. By himself? No, he was with some other people, okay. but he was the only physician. Right. And he just happened to figure out that he had acute pancreatitis. Oh, man. And that he was about to die. And that he had two choices. He could either allow himself to die, or he could perform an appendectomy on himself. I'm <laughs> well, sorry, he had uh, appendicitis. Okay. What did he do? He performed an appendectomy on himself. Wow. When you're doing this, you can't knock yourself out. So he had no anesthesia whatsoever. Oh, my God. And he stayed awake the whole time he would work for four or five minutes as he was carving there's a famous picture of him like carving himself and he's just stained with blood <laughs> um and uh he'd work for four or five minutes rest for about 20 30 seconds try to keep from passing out and he finally did it he he successfully performed surgery on himself and lived to uh 2000 i think is when he died and he lived another 2000 minutes <laughs> but he i mean could you be badder than that he's pretty bad he's up there with uh onoda yeah and uh who was the white the white death? Uh, Simo Haya. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see those guys sit down and have a tough off. Yeah, like an <laughs> arm wrestling competition. Yeah. So anyway, you're stuck there in the winter for sure, but you can frequently get stuck there in the summer too. Which hey, you know, it's only like fifteen below in the summer. <laughs> you're golden. Uh, sightseeing cruises probably what the most popular thing to do, like the Alaskan cruise. They'll They'll run you through uh, through uh, the Kodak Gap, which, did you look at the pictures of this place? No, is it pretty? Oh, my gosh. The La Mer Channel is the official name uh, between the Booth Island Mountains and the Arctic Peninsula, Peninsula. But they call it that, obviously, because they should call it the Digital MPEG Gap now, I guess. Sure. But uh, it's extremely photogenic. It's, it's where you see, like, those just, like, ice blue cave, uh, ice caves that you can, like, go through when you're boat and stuff like that nice i guess not caves but tunnels cool it's pretty amazing and hope you don't strike either side yeah, exactly so they're going to take you on these cruises they're going to get you close uh some of these tours will take you actually on to land uh from a smaller boat or a helicopter for a little while but you're not going to be spending a whole lot of time on land if you're doing one of the cruise ships right there are well, there are some um Expeditions you can undertake, like um, there's some that you can cross-country ski I bet that's to the South awesome Pole, yeah. and you camp along the way. It's like a two-week tour, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'll bet it's pretty cool, too, but sure. I think you have to be um, kind of strong of mind, probably. Yeah, and you'll body. Get, no, you'll go nuts, Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, I'm sure there are conditions to where it's like, quote-unquote, warm and just lovely and blue, but there's also going to be the, the whiteouts. Right. Where you can't see your hand in front of your face, and the wind is like blowing your headgear off, and mm -hmm. yeah, that's no good. Well, plus also, I think plenty of it's barren 
It's just this, the same view, yeah, sure. like 360 degrees, which has to drive you a little nutty, too. It's lovely, though. Um, you can also, if you're insane, already run a marathon in Antarctica. I'm going to tell my friend James about this. He's a trail runner and does, like, these trail marathons yeah. and these crazy things, and he's... I think he's doing one in Ireland soon, so he likes to travel. I'm, I'm going to turn him on to this. All he needs is about sixteen grand, and he can join in the Adventure Network International full or half marathon. I would imagine it's um, fifteen five for the half marathon, and then sixteen grand <laughs> for the full marathon. Um, but you're uh, running in the interior of Antarctica um, at about minus twenty degrees Fahrenheit, and you're going to have to deal with the temperature, the wind. Changes yeah. in elevation. Emperor penguins trying to trip you because they got money on somebody else. And let's be honest, running a marathon. <laughs> let's not forget that you know, part. That's challenging in July. It in Atlanta. keeps me at home right there. What uh, I want to know what they run in though, <clears throat> shoe wise. Yeah, I wonder too. You know, I wonder if if it's. I mean, obviously they're not wearing snowshoes or anything like that, or spikes. I guess there's areas where just heavy tread would work. I would think so. There's got to be. Or else, what are you going to do? You can't run a marathon in snowshoes. No, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, So once you're there, you want to pass a little time. You want to see some things that are awesome besides the Kodak Gap. Uh, You can go check out the the mountain there, and you can even climb it. And it's really not – I didn't get a height on that, did you? No, but it's a four-mile climb. Which isn't that much. No. I mean, it's not – it's nothing to sneeze at. But it's no Everest. But I imagine there's probably a lot of ice to it, ice climbing, and as well as just rock climbing. Mount Vincent is what we're, we're talking about, of course. Vincent. What did I say? Vincent. Vinson. Yeah. Not Vincent. Right. Okay. It's the son of Vincent. Gotcha. Sorry about that. Uh, you can go get your picture made in a bikini in front of the little South Pole marker <laughs> at the uh, Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. It's a very... Famous American Research Center at the South Pole, and they have right. a little candy cane pole with a little silver ball on top of it. And I've seen a lot of pictures of ladies in bikinis taking their picture there. So the the Americans never said this is our land, but they're the ones who built the research station, like virtually on top of the South Pole. Yeah. Um, and Amundsen Scott, that's named after the two guys who uh, made it to the South Pole, including Robert Scott and Roald Amundsen. Yeah. When was this, the early 1900s? It was uh, 1911 and 1912, Jeez, which makes it crazy. seem like um, Amundsen beat the tar out of Scott, but it was really four weeks, December and January. Oh, really? Yeah. And when you go, you're going to find that there are very friendly people at this facility, that there are tours already set up. It's kind of a routine thing to like yeah. go to you know, the um, American South Pole Station because, uh, I mean, if you like the outdoors, you're going to love Antarctica, but there's not that much to do, really. No. There really isn't. You check out the There's a lot of wildlife. Well, yes. And apparently one of the cool things about emperor penguins, uh, and penguins in general, is they are not at all afraid of humans. That's because we've never killed them with reckless abandon. I know. Or at least as far as they know. <laughs> right. They, and apparently they'll just ignore us and um, hang out with us and... Pose for pictures? Yeah. They'll do close-ups. But uh, it, it just about any naturalist or biologist will tell you, just hanging around an animal and watching it like some slack-jawed goon sure. is going to produce stress in that animal most likely because the animal, even though it's not scared of you as a predator, it doesn't know what you're going to do or what you're doing or what you want. And um, you just probably should keep that in mind Yeah, when you're observing penguins. Don't chase the penguins. Right. 
And when I said yelled at. when I said a lot of wildlife, let me clear that up. It's not like Yosemite National Park wildlife, but it is a very hospitable place for certain kinds of animals, especially animals that live in the water, because there's just tons of protein. You got whales, you got penguins, you got polar bears. Man, you have to see uh, March of the Penguins. I, I don't, I know, you know, it, it was one so of those movies good. that just got by me. It is. I think it won an Oscar. Yeah, sure. What yeah. Morgan Freeman? Yeah, well, our yeah, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a really great movie. Have you ever been to the aquariums penguin exhibit? Uh, sh- yes. You know, you can stick your head up. That you can crawl into the tunnel, right? And you stick your head up into a a clear, uh, plexi, mm-hmm. uh, hole for your head, basically. Yeah. And the penguins are right there, right in front of your face. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, you're stressing me out. Exactly. Observing me. So, Chuck, um, the water is generally, uh, or the sea is good for the wildlife around it because they've adapted to it. Yeah. If you're one of those polar bear guys, though, you can conceivably jump in during the winter. You should do so at your own risk. Oh, the, the humans that do that stuff? Uh-huh. Yeah. Because the water gets down to about 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or I should say up to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're going to freeze because it's zero Celsius. Yeah. Um, it's very, very dangerous, and if you do that and you hurt yourself... You're going to find yourself on a long, arduous journey back to Chile or Argentina um, at your own expense. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of medical help at these stations, and maybe a passing cruise ship will have uh, the the good doctor from the love boat on board. Mm-hmm. But um, you're not going to be able to get serious medical attention, and you're you could be in trouble yep. unless you get out of their toot suite, or you're going to be performing self surgery. Right, exactly. BDD style. So how much does this kind of run you? Uh, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. I, I've heard you can expect to spend upwards of ten grand. I mean, the marathon was sixteen grand. I mean, getting there is going to be pricey. Period. Sure, but like a really probably probably like um, full on great stateroom kind of cruise down there, including airfare to South America, it's going to run you ten grand or probably less. I'm sure you can get deals for less, but you need to have a little bit of cash to make it down to Antarctica. It's not a poor man's vacation. No. Is what you're saying. Yes. Environmental safety concerns, Josh, we talked about, obviously, what did you say was there now, DDT? Yeah. They found traces of it? No, they found it in penguins. Jeez. Uh, in April 2009, uh, there was a joint session of the Antarctic Treaty Panel and the Arctic Council, and they met in Baltimore, Maryland, which I'm sure that's nice in April, but... For some reason, I thought they would say, like, let's go to Phoenix in July <laughs> and hold our meeting and thaw. But uh, they had, you know, a lot on the agenda, including glo- global warming talks, shipping routes, stuff like that. But they did talk about tourism, and not coincidentally, or coincidentally, around that same time, a 25-mile uh, ice shelf broke off, shattered into the sea, which kind of was, like, symbolic of, hey, we really need to talk about tourism. 25 miles. That's huge. And the... um. I guess the tourism and the loss of ice has a sort of self-reinforcing thing going on because you lose ice, you actually get more tourism, which is ostensibly responsible for even further climate change in the area. And so you lose more ice and you get even more tourism. The reason why is because you lose a 25-mile piece of ice, cruise ships go, oh, we can go in here now. Right, we have a passage. Exactly. Jerks. So they're they're coming up with... um, I guess an idea of how they can, um, they want to ban 
the construction of any kind of hotels or anything yeah. like that. Any permanent not even tourist hotel. accommodations. No, not even. Which are pretty Although cool. that would probably no, that would be permanent down there, I'm sure. Yeah. So I was gonna say it would be it wouldn't be permanent, but yeah, they it usually would be melt in during the summer. Right. Um you want they need they want to do a number a, a limitation to the number of ships that can come in every year. Yeah. Um restrictions on how close ships can come to shore. Yeah, like are you gonna drop people off here at the shoreline? Yeah. Just to see those little penguins. But here's the problem. They can't just say like, okay, we're gonna have fifty ships a year or twenty or whatever. Uh, if you touch the penguins, you'll be executed by the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Yeah. Um, they can't say these things because no one has any sovereign right to issue any kind of decree over Antarctica. So what can they do? Just establish guidelines and recommend that signatory countries and travel agencies follow them? Yeah. And suggest highly suggest that? But right now there's only 47 signatory countries on the uh, Antarctic Treaty. Yeah, I wonder who's on there. I was going to look that up, but I didn't get a chance. Uh, and the reason why they don't ban people outright, not only can they not, but one of the uh, most important parts of the, the treaty is that it does allow freedom of access. They're like, you know what, you can come here. If yeah, you're, they if can't stop to. anybody from coming there. Yeah, And I feel, like they, I feel like they want to allow it just to a degree. Sure. I might be wrong there, but... Well, I'm sure the the tour operators associations like no no we want to tread lightly here exactly um, and then speaking of getting stuck in Antarctica one last thing you know about this um, a couple of years ago the a, a case of eleven bottles of Scotch McKinley Scotch which isn't made any longer and was originally produced in 1896 or 97 and was part of the um, Ernest Shackleton Nimrod expedition of 1907, uh, was left beneath his hut and forgotten for like a 100 years, and they found it in 2006. When did we talk about this? We talked about it on the webcast. Ah, the good old webcast. And (laughs) they got it out of there. Remember, you and I were like, what's going to happen to this because of that treaty? Like, Antarctica is there for scientific expedition. You're supposedly not supposed to touch anything that has any sort of historical or scientific significance. It's not supposed to come out. Right. So they're like, you can't really remove this. Guess we'll have to drink it down there. Well, it turns out that um, Canterbury Museum in uh, Christchurch, New, New Zealand, now has this scotch in its exhibit. I can't remember. Did they sample it? Someone did, didn't they? No one will probably ever taste the scotch. Instead, they've really? allowed some scotch makers to um, to take samples and see if they can recreate it because no one has the original recipe anymore. I bet someone's taken a nip. That's what I'm thinking, too. Somebody has. I, surely some rich guy was like, get me that scotch. Here's as much money as you need. Yeah. And it didn't go into the hands of some rich scotch lover. It went to a uh, relatively unknown museum in New Zealand, which is pretty cool. I bet the night guard, I bet there's some Kiwi security guard that's taken the the tiniest of nips. Right. And then filled it back up with, like, tea. Yes. They'll never know. It's like the mini bar. (laughs) So you got anything else? Uh, I don't. So that concludes our episode on alcoholism among night watchmen. And if you want to learn more about that or Antarctica, you want to type in A-N-T-A-R-C-T-I-C-A in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means it's time for a listener mail. Josh, I'm going to call this uh, exchange, email exchange, because I'm actually going to read my response, to uh, sort of an upset Canadian. This is about daylight saving. Uh Which, by the way, we misspoke. Go ahead and say that. We're getting beat up 
by the uh, the people south of the equator when we said that they spring back and fall forward? Yeah. That it's not so. They spring forward and fall back. It's just at opposite times as us. Know what I'm saying? No. They spring forward, they fall back, but their spring is opposite of our spring. You haven't seen the, the Facebook and emails? They've been yes, killing us. Yes, but their spring... Okay, I, I gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. It was very, very North Hemisphere-centric. <laughs> and so I need to explain myself here because uh, I got an email from Marie from Canada, and she was a little mad at me. Just finished listening to the podcast on Daylight Saving Time. Uh, you mentioned that in the civilized world, time makes no difference, and only the rising and setting of the sun is really important. I wanted to offer you a different perspective on that. I live in Whitehorse, Yukon, Canada, and the sun is currently rising at 9.53, sets at 3.51, and that's a whole five hours and 57 minutes of light in the dead of winter. I assure you that we are a fully functioning part of the civilized world here, and setting the time is very important to us. We do observe daylight saving time in the Yukon, and in the summer month, when we get our, uh, on average, 18 hours of daylight, having the clocks change makes a huge difference in my daily life. After the long dark, it's a relief that the clocks now allow for a little more vitamin D. I think you, uh, I just found your comments callous. Perhaps you should rely less on these skeptic pages as it seems to put you in a sour mood. I think you mean skeptoid. Yeah. Uh, please remember that you have a very wide range of listeners and we are not savages out in the wastelands. We are intelligent people who enjoy learning and see you and your colleagues as valuable and often entertaining source of information. She's talking to you, right? Because that sounds like one of your quotes. It was one of mine. Okay. So I wrote Marie back and I was like, Marie, I'm, I, you either misunderstood or I didn't get it across clearly. I wasn't saying that at all. What I'm saying is the civilized world is the, the only reason clocks matter to me is because man invented clocks and time, quote unquote, to get on schedule in a commerce way. So businesses could be open and you could reference schedules and work schedules and, and shopping and things like that. If man had never invented a clock, it wouldn't change anything about the rising and setting of the sun. We would just operate on the rising and the setting of the sun. It's like I'm watching you right? set us up for a future <laughs> listener mail. Yeah. So it very much matters, obviously, in the civilized world because that's the only place that time matters. I imagine in third world countries where they don't have clocks, they just operate with the rising and the setting of the sun like we did before we invented clocks. All right. Give me your shovel. Does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> I certainly wasn't trying to say that people in of Canada were uncivilized. And people of Canada, attention. Chuck Bryant means you no harm. He's a very nice guy. None. I can very even sing the, the Canadian anthem if and I And he is to. never out to hurt anybody's feelings. Even when he does, it's accidental. Please accept his apologies. So I either misspoke or it was misunderstood or something got garbled up. But uh, sorry, Marie. So there you have it. Thank you to all of our friends in Canada for listening. Man, i got to tell you, they tick off easily, especially if you call their Thanksgiving fake Thanksgiving. They're sensitive people. They do not like that. But it's because Americans are arrogant, and they're like, you know what? Yeah. But they don't necessarily pick up on when we're poking fun at our own arrogance. Yeah. Which is surprising, because they gave us Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Yeah. Whittier men alive. So, uh, if you have a great story about Dan Aykroyd, we want to hear about it. Okay? Heck yeah. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. 
Uh, you can go on to Facebook and let us know about it at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?